So with me today, we are honored to welcome a remarkable woman who not only has triumphed over adversity, but also emerged as a source of inspiration and resilience. Diana Koning grew up in Saskatchewan and has faced the challenges of growing up in a family marked by alcoholism, trauma, illness, and personal struggles. Her journey is a testament to the power of determination, healing, and personal growth. Today, she is a best-selling author, public speaker, and advocate for those facing similar hardships. Her book, Silently Said, which I read yesterday, which sheds light on her family's journey, has touched the hearts of many. I'm also excited to share that Diana will be sharing the stage with Arlene Dickinson and Jack Canfield at the upcoming LEAD conference later this year, where leaders from various fields will come together to inspire and empower. You can learn more at Corliss, C-O-R-L-I-S-S dot C-A slash LEAD 2023. Today, Diana will share her insights on addiction, trauma, resilience, and her remarkable journey to success. Diana Koning grew up in rural Saskatchewan, Canada, and has faced the challenges of growing up in a family marked by alcoholism, chronic disease, trauma, and personal struggles. Her journey is a testament to the power of determination, healing, and personal growth. Diana, welcome. I was wondering, what inspired you to write Silently Said? And did you take any preparation or did you, what did you do to go from, you know what, I'm going to write a book about my trauma and, and all essentially all the bad things that happened the good things too, but you know, it's the bad things that I think that we focus on, but what gave you the courage or where did you find the courage to, to do that? So silently said was 25 years in the making. I started it when I was about 18. I was super scared to publish it. Lots of events happened between then and last year when I released it. A big part of it was I had one big long book, but sometimes I read books that are really heavy and it's too much for me. So once I decided to split it in half, then I was able to, you know, work on that first book and get that set the stage for you guys so you could come and kind of sit on my shoulder, smell the smells in my grandma's kitchen and feel the feelings of the little girl. Uh, the driving force behind it when I was 18 was just, I wanted to get it out of me because trauma sitting inside you just, it was, uh, it manifested in my life, like chronic overthinking, insecurities, all of those things. And lots of events happened between then and the time that I turned 44. And I was just like, my kids, I'm, I'm, uh, mom of twin girls who are 19 so they were leaving the nest and I felt like it was the right time because something told me inside that this book had a lot of meaning to a lot of people I wanted those people to feel like if I can do it they can do it like if they can see me persevere that they can persevere because there's a lot of pain and I did a, I started doing a lot of reading about trauma probably starting in about 2020 and that just kind of roller coastered into a real deep dive on myself. It's heart wrenching, and it's and it's quite inspiring. It also resonated with me. I am a recovered alcoholic. I re recovered about fifteen and a half years ago. I have five children. I don't have any children that remember their daddy being a drunk, and because of that. I probably don't don't have a lot of the guilt that a lot of other people do. So when I, I read your book and you're coming from an Al-Anon side and I'm coming from the alcoholic side, it, it, it affected me deeply, probably more so than I wanted it to. Because I, I guess from your father's perspective, I and and for 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 the people that that um, haven't read your book, Diana's book uh, is about her childhood and the more importantly, I think, are the formative years of her life, where she took a lot of the adult responsibility that her adult parents couldn't take for themselves because mom had a chronic unexplained disease, and dad regressed and found and became a shell of himself and hid in that proverbial closet that we hide in with a bottle of booze 
because he couldn't deal with the reality of, of, of life and the, and the pain that, that it caused him. And so this little girl who's, who's in front of us took responsibility for her parents and, and took that responsibility for her siblings as well. And it, it is a, a story that displays uncommon valor and bravery in such a young person. And I think that people like you are, are real heroes. And, and I just wanted to thank you for overcoming your dad's illness and your mom's illness and being there for your family members and your siblings and especially your sister, Kim. That being said, and I, and I don't mean to be emotional, but I, I do get emotional. But really, what, what, where did you find the courage to, to put pen to paper? Well, the first thing is it was getting it out of me because trauma sitting inside me wasn't good for me. And actually, the biggest driving force behind it all were my kids because I have twins that are 19. They're leaving. They left the nest on their own journeys. One wants to go into law and the other one just released her second single in the music industry today. Uh, yeah. So a little plug for her, Joelle. The song's called What If. And where I want to... Where can people find it? Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube Music. She sing, sings with FXR, another local artist. And it's a fantastic song they recorded in her closet. And it sounds... What? Oh my God. What genre, what genre is it? More like pop. So okay. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. So... I wanted them to live their life not held back. And I held myself back for so long. I wanted to just be brave for them and to show them that even though I was 44 years old when I released my first book and I talked about it for like 20 years, that any age, doesn't matter what age, you can achieve your dreams. So they were really, honestly, the driving force. And I knew the message was going to help a lot of people. I didn't expect it to go as far as it has in the school system here in Saskatchewan, going and touring schools, corporate keynotes, just the, the message is clear that vulnerability and courage are what we need in order to grow as people. It's not about the, the stuff that you own. They're nice. It's nice to have nice things, but it's about the person you become through the journey. And I wanted to show them how... I got to where I am now. So book one leaves off when I'm 25. So you don't have the whole picture, but yeah, I just, uh, I just dove in. It was new year's day, 2022. Mm -hmm. And I just finished a chapter and went, I think this is it. And I sent it to an editor and then it was published six months later. And I was like, okay, we're doing this. So scary. Like it's like running down the street naked, scary. <laughs> for yeah. everybody to judge but at the end of the day it was the most liberating thing I've ever done for myself that is that's amazing that's amazing now for for the people listening could you give a just a brief summary of you know the book itself but really what, what your early childhood development was like yeah so as I was nine months old youngest of four when my mom got a extremely rare brain atrophy. It took all of the abilities that she had that we all, you know, take for granted, like walking, talking, feeding ourselves, doing anything for ourselves, and, and it locked it away. So I was about four when I started having kind of memories of it all. My dad, he used alcohol, and it's going to be really get interesting to get your perspective because you're the you're the conversation I never did get to have with my dad. Um, and we were left to kind of fend for ourselves and take care of our mom until I was about six. And my mom moved into full-time care. And then we were really, we had our grandma and then she passes. And I move into the world just wanting to get rid of the family that I had. Sadly, I, I you know, I leave home and I'm just all about making maybe a different life for myself. And as I move through that, I, there's a situation that happens with my sister, and I end up taking a, a lot of responsibility for her. And so essentially the, the same, well, she probably had a genetic disorder from your mom because it, seemed, it was the same disorder that your mom was affected by? 
Yeah, there was no name for the illness. You'll get more closure on that one in book two because I start to really advocate, be an advocate for my sister, which I was in book one, you'll see that. But I was really driven and I had, and part of it was I was driven by guilt because I was the only girl in the family not to get sick. I have two older brothers and my older sister and I just felt really bad because my mom and my sister were sick. So I felt like I had to do everything that I could to to kind of save her life. Now talk about, talk about your dad's illness and how that affected you. I always said when my mom got sick, two people got sick. With the addiction, I never knew what I was going to get. There were times where I'd wish he'd drink to take the edge off because he'd be so angry. There would be other times when the, the anger really came out worse when he was he's drinking. He was a closet drinker. So he would tell us, so oh, I'm going to go get the mail, leave us at home with our mom and leave at, say, 1 p.m. or 10 a.m. and not come home at all. So we had one brother that was the brave one that would call the bar to try and figure out what we were going to do. Like, okay, well, we need food or we need something. And usually that was not successful for him to come home. Times where we were caring for our mom and we had a particular incident that happened when I was five. He didn't come home and my mom was injured. He was essentially running and through reading and diving into actually Dr. Gabor Matei's work on trauma and addiction, I now have some closure on how he, how he felt and why he was why he was handling it the way that he was. But I felt very lost. There was a lot of childhood neglect, I would call it. Times where we would be sitting in the vehicle for hours or not being able to get into the vehicle when it was parked in front of the local small town bar. There was the humiliation of, you know, fellow kids saying, you know, my parents said they saw your dad at the bar last night and he was doing headstands and all these things because he liked to be a gymnast when he drank. There was a lot of shame and I just wanted to really run and, and not look back. But it's where I came from. How what was in your father's family? Do you know if he had a history of alcoholism in his family? Not to my knowledge. My dad's dad was 54 when he was born. So my he passed away when I was three weeks old. My grandma was not an alcoholic. She was also back in the day when you're 36 and have a kid, you know, in 1946, that's not very common. Yep. So he was born to older parents who were very, they had a lot of problems that they kept to themselves. I've learned some things through my dad's only sister, his only sibling, actually. And she shed some light on kind of his childhood. He was a little bit spoiled. He was the only boy. And in rural Saskatchewan, you've got someone to inherit the farm then and keep the family family name going and it's just been it, like learning all of that and seeing where he came from he was obviously lost as well and my aunt always says the addiction started before my mom got sick it, it probably did there it, that, that most likely exacerbated it and and gave him an excuse to abuse alcohol but he he could have been a genetic alcoholic that's why i, I had asked on this side of the glass from the, the, the addict's perspective, I'm always looking at literature constantly about, you know, a trauma and, and why it was that I, that I abused alcohol in the first place, but, but also the genetic component to it, because just, you know, fun facts about myself, my family comes from Prince Edward Island, Canada. And, oh, okay. Uh, we're, we're, we are rural people as well. And there are very deep, dark secrets in closets and in small little houses and farmhouses and, and PEI. And there's, there's a lot of our family secrets up there. But it, it, when I look back at my family history, it is replete with alcoholism mm. and, and suicides. And a lot of people not making it to their 50s, uh, a lot of them not making it to their 50s. And it, and it seems that in, in my family, we were not able to escape, even with our family moved here in 19, my grandmother moved here in 1937 from PEI. And she reminds me a lot of you. My grandmother was a very strong woman and she had an alcoholic for a husband and he was from PEI. And when they joined the war, he came back from Guadalcanal. And he was not the same person and his body came back, but his mind and his soul didn't come back. 
and he poisoned himself with liquor and then jumped off a bridge in 1954, I think it was. And so there was a lot of pain there. And my, my grandmother raised two children on her own in Boston, Massachusetts, being a foreigner and, and working two shifts at a bread factory for 22 years. And so she was a strong, strong woman, but also engendered in us a sense of pride in our family that from your grandmother's perspective, from, from your perspective and your experience with your grandmother, it, it seemed um, that that was a similar experience that your grandmother conveyed upon you the strength of your family and the resilience of your family. And perhaps you were able to draw on that in interventions and in some some of the a few of the intervention modalities i guess it is there is a push now away from the johnson method of intervention where you kind of yell at the addict and say you better go to rehab or you're going to go to jail you know or it's this binary decision of really horrible things to happen or you're going to go to to rehab and what they found is empirically that that doesn't work as well as you know, inviting the person to go to rehab, and there is one of the modalities that that incorporates a lot of family history, like your family history, my family, and, and what your grandmother did for you, and what my grandmother did for me. We, as interventionists, for the first time for these families, introduce them to the history of their own family, and to, to know that your grandfather served in World War II and he got shot down, and he and he. He escaped from enemy lines and your grandmother had four kids while he was gone and, and took care of all of them. And to show the, the hard work and resilience and all, and, and all of the labor that went into literally bringing you into this world. And it, and it, and it, and it makes, it makes us a feel special and wanted and, and little miracles on our own, but it also in, in, instills in us a sense of duty to, to the rest of the family and to ourselves. And so I, I guess I'm blabbering, but it, it, it seems as though that your grandmother may have done that. that that's the very same thing uh, for, for you and your family. Yeah. And when we lost her, it rocked my yeah. And I was young and she was older. She was the, she was our safe place. And she had this love for me that I didn't have to earn. Right. It wasn't conditional. There was, it, because at home there was always so much work to do without our mom. We had caregivers for my mom when she was there. But after mom went into care, we were on our own. And my dad was gone a lot. Either he was in the field or he had he was out drinking. And there were times where he was at home. But he would be in the shop or doing some things. There's lots, lots of stuff to get done. And a lot of financial stress. So we just... You know, we just had to get by. My aunt, my mom's oldest sister, did step up to the plate as much as she could. She lived two and a half hours away from us. And she did her best to, you know, support us and love us through. She would take us for like three weeks in the in the summer. My dad's sister also took us for some time in the summer. And it was those little moments. I remember sitting in the back of the van when my dad would come pick us up to go back home. And I was just... I was trying to hide my tears because we weren't allowed to have tears. So I was in the back seat crying. I, I felt like a kid when I was there and that I, there was no conditions. I just had to be who I was. And so being at home was very tense and you, you learned, I really honed my sixth sense, not only with my dad, like uh, kind of feeling my way through when he was going to have a burst of anger, but um, with my mom and then my sister, because they became nonverbal, I really had to work on figuring out what they needed, right? And right. Uh, they couldn't communicate it to me. So it was more watching facial, facial expressions and feeling the energy of a room, which I still feel the energy of a room a lot when I go in. And, and I'm aware of my own energy too. So there was some little gifts that were given. I was definitely given the gift of a couple of loving family members that cared. Um in 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 your 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 immediate family but also with with your brothers has your your father's illness followed your brothers or anyone in your family there are no other addicts we are all we do not abuse drugs or alcohol which is you know i always said it was like a thorn in my back that if i lean too far back i could feel it poking and i knew 
like I had a, an idea that I never wanted to go down that road. But yeah. when you're younger and you kind of get a little crazy, definitely probably had too much alcohol uh, in days past, but I, I really keep it in check. That being said, I get easily triggered when someone has too much alcohol. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the reason I, I, I was asking is I was, I was wondering if you could share with, 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 with the people watching you know, it, it, was there anything that, that you did to, to try to, to, to try to avoid, you know, the, the, the addiction passing on to you? Did you, and, and you, I think you've already answered that. Did you abstain from alcohol completely or when you were younger, did you partake and, and just be very careful? I partook and I wasn't really aware too much when you're 19 and going out with your friends and, yeah. and doing things. I had a lot of fun. I had freedom because at my, my house when I was a kid, the boys were treated differently than girls. The boys could go out freely and, and go do what they wanted, and the girls were kept at home, and that was just an old belief system installed, I think, from my dad's parents. So that, was, that limited my sister and I on going out. I also, and I, I know this isn't a religious discussion, but I had enough of kind of a belief in that, that I was like, okay, any situation I, I need to get through, I don't need alcohol. I just, I need my faith. Right. So I kind of hung on to that as I moved into being a young parent, that was just something I didn't want my kids to see. They don't need to see it. They don't need to be with their, their mom. And when she's intoxicated, when people get too intoxicated, there's arguments and there's frustration and there's things that I didn't want my kids to be around. I do know that, you know, they, they do have some, some drinks as well. They're, they're of age and that's fine. They had drinks with us when they were at home just to kind of see how they'd react, right? That was a big thing. I wanted to see their reaction to the alcohol. But there wasn't anything specific that I tried to abstain from other than just having a belief that this isn't going to be their life. And I was just determined. It wasn't, they weren't going to go through that. So then when my sister got sick, I just really felt the feelings. I would say I went into some deep, dark places, but I let it all out. I let it out in writing. I let it out in tears. There were people who said, aren't you going to get over this? There are things you cannot get over. And I wasn't about to turn to alcohol to help me get over it because then I'm going to have a new problem because you, you don't ever get over it. Your, your grief is one size and you have to grow around it. It doesn't get smaller over the years, right? It just, you have to make room for it. And in order to do that, I had to do it with a sober mind. So your grief never gets any smaller. You're just, your, your life gets larger around it. And so yeah. you notice it less. Yeah. That's, that's, I, I've never thought about it that way. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good one. I, in, in our, in our person, in, in my own personal life, that is, you know, tr trauma has always been, Childhood trauma has always been the, the the biggest problem hurdle for me to get over, and I as well. I I cannot stand when when people have too much to drink. Uh, I I'm perfectly fine being around people who are drinking. I've I've never had a yen in my life. I am I am extremely lucky that way. Uh, once I quit drinking, I went to a 28 day program. I like to brag that I graduated early, and I graduated in 21 days. <laughs> they, nice. they told me to go. They told me to go home. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and go back to your girls. Aww. So I, I did. And they were at the time, one just turned three and the other one was four. And so when, when I do ask them and I, I say, do you ever remember daddy drinking? And, and, and both of them just say, no, daddy, we don't remember anything. Which, which is good. I mean, they remember the houses that they lived in with their mom and I, but they don't remember anything about my, my drinking. And so uh, the reason I was asking about your family history going forward was as, is that I'm deeply worried about my, my girls and, and, and they're concerned about it because I know they try to protect my feelings all the time mm. because they'll say, daddy, daddy, we're, we're never going to drink, daddy, we're never going to drink. And, and, and what they don't know is that, God, that makes me feel really guilty. Because I start saying to myself, this is my disease. It's like giving your kid arthritis. And mm -hmm. my dad had given, my dad had rheumatoid arthritis. I have psoriatic arthritis. My mother had psoriatic arthritis as well. And my dad had given rheumatoid arthritis to my sister, uh, my little baby sister. 
and I lost my little baby sister to addiction six years ago. And she died of an opiate overdose, fentanyl. And she was a doctor here in Connecticut and was very successful. And it just goes to show you that that addiction does not discriminate. It doesn't care if you're rich or you're, or you're poor. It, it, will, it will find you. So, you know, with my own girls, I always felt guilty that I didn't, that, you know, that I may have passed this on to them. And I've also explained to them how, you know, alcoholism tends to skip generations. And the reason that it does is is that it, it is genetic. It's a genetic marker on a on a on the GABA two gene. And if you have a what's called a C alien on it, rather than an L alien, which is sort of typical, if you have a C alien on it, which is atypical but very typical of Northern European people. And what it does what it does is is the C alien dampens the effects of alcohol. So a normal person's reaction to alcohol when you have one or two drinks is I feel sedated, I feel warm, I feel happy, I feel, well, for lack of a better term, I feel serene. The, what they now know from the people who have a different alien on that gene is that it takes them twice as much to feel that way. So the alcohol doesn't affect them in the same way as it does with typical people. And th- and when I read that from the Scribs Institute and from the, the Medical Council on, on Addiction from the Oxford Institute, they explained that what, what, what that explanation did is, is, it, is it really resonated with my own personal feelings because I would have you know, a girlfriend or, or somebody I was dating or, or my, my wife doesn't drink, but somebody back in the past and I would watch them have a drink and then they would be happy. And then I would watch them have another drink and they would kind of get tired and, and want to fall asleep. And you'd say, do you want a third drink? And they'd say, no, why would I ever want a third drink? And I'd look at them and go, I would ask myself that same question about why wouldn't you want a third drink? <laughs> because I, I, at one or two, I was not anywhere near where they were. And Rather than feeling sedated and serene when I drank, I felt energized and I felt stimulated. And, I, and rather than wanting to sit down and listen to the music, I wanted to get on the stage. I wanted to grab the the lead singer and grab the microphone. I wanted to grab the guitar off of the off of the guitar player, and I wanted to kiss the the singers in the back the girls of course and then so and that's all i wanted to do i just wanted to party 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 and be a part of like the the scene i wanted to get on top of tables and dance and that's how i wanted to roll because that's the way that alcohol made me feel and it made me feel excitable and it made and it really acted as a stimulant where normally it's a depressant and so that that particular gene is hereditary from one person to the other and uh i could tell you i have it on both sides of my family Yeah, um, that's actually very interesting because with my dad going to the bar and then him doing headstands, right? Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, he's normally an introvert and quiet, doesn't, you know, didn't have a big circle of people in his world besides his kids and a couple close friends. So when you say that, it helps me understand what it was doing for him because then he could be the life of the party. Yes, and and it would give him, it would give him energy, which is the simple sugar, the diacetic acid makes you delusional and think that you're better looking than you are, you're funnier than you are, you can dance when you really can't dance, and boy, you're a great singer, and and you're probably a fantastic lover too. That's what alcohol does for all of us. And so when he has, he starts to drink and he feels that way, it relieves him most likely of the, the, the hypertension and the, and the anxiety that, that has been, has been driving his personality down. And so most likely he probably had some childhood trauma himself where that individuality was suppressed by someone or something or a combination thereof or some institution. Normally it's just a dad or a mom. And yeah. you, when you're, when you find your own personality becoming subservient to somebody else's, where you do have the opportunities to become yourself and show yourself, you you don't have any experience in doing that. So as we get older, and we don't have the experience of somebody saying, "Hey, who is it that you are?" 
And we'd like to hear about who you are. And we'd also like to value as value you as somebody important. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't have that experience in life. And so when you get it all the way through your 20s and you get into social situations and you're not with your parents anymore, suddenly you become you start thinking that you're you're almost nothing inside and that you have nothing of value and you're just sort of a follower of other people. And when you start taking those first drinks, when you start hanging out in bars and whatnot, all of that fear and anxiety sub that's subconscious from your from your childhood is just lifted from you. And then suddenly for the first time, you can be you. And when you feel that, it is that in and of itself, that feeling is, is addicting where I want to go to the bar. Why? Because I'm a somebody there. It's like that song from Cheers. Everybody knows your name. Mm -hmm. People don't know how good of a song that is because that says exactly what happens at a bar. Everybody knows your name. And if they don't know your name, it doesn't matter because you don't really care that much. Anyways, you just want the feeling that everybody knows your name. And that's what the alcohol does. It's that false feeling of, of accomplishment, of, of, of valor and honor and, and everything that we all, that, that we, we, we seek in a social setting, that, that sort of social validation. It just comes in a little drink and, and two seconds later, you, well, actually about 30 seconds later, you, you feel like a different person than the person that walked in the door. And that could yeah, be that, that why sense. your dad went there. Yeah, I can, I can see it. And now, you know, 46, 45 years later, you know, I understand it. Gabor Matei always says, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. Because we're not getting to the where the pain was, right? He'd talk sometimes about his childhood and the pain. His mom hit him across the head so hard he went deaf in one ear. We didn't find out that when he was sober. He would only tell us that when he was drinking. My, my dad would come here for Christmases to my house or spend whenever it was our side of the family or actually he always came to my house at Christmas, even if the other siblings were gone to the other sides that he, like, I never left him alone. He would always come, but he would always try and be sober for us because he knew I didn't want the kids to be exposed to that. But then, you know, that sacrifice too, what, what did that do to his body and what was that doing to his, his mind and, and the whole, and, and putting him in a social setting and, other people are drinking. And so that was a, a testament to the love that he was really, you know, putting that effort in to, for me. I see that now. But, you know, when you're 26 years old with twin babies and responsibility of taking care of your sister and everything else, you, you don't even see everything like you do when you go back. And that was part of writing the book was going back to those stories to learn. Like there was a lot of little diamonds in the rough covered up with ash, you know, because it was pretty much a full, full on burn down of, of life events that I ran from forever. And then I realized that all of my current situations that I was facing in life, if I didn't figure out what happened in my past, I wouldn't be able to write my now. Does that make sense? Like, it makes total sense. Yeah. Because that personality type of my dad would come through in other people in my world. I, I luckily married a really great guy who's not an addict. He a wonderful father to our children. And we built a beautiful life. And now my kids are out in the world and they come back and they're like, my God, we're so lucky. There's so many people hurting mom. Like this happened to this person and this happened to that person. And they have to do this and they can't afford their education. And they look at themselves and they're like, mom and dad, like, you guys are our world. But that, that was my marker of accomplishment was to be a good parent, to be the parent um, that I needed. And, and I, I think that, that going through that, that, that kiln or that forge that you had to go through, which was your own childhood, that probably made you a, a much stronger piece of steel for your, for your own children and your own, in your own life. And I, I'm I'm going to put on my commentary hat now and stop asking you questions because you had said that, you know, that, that during your childhood and, and into your teen years and you had felt that you had run away from some of these issues. And, and I can tell you that you didn't run away, that, 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 that you didn't shirk any of your responsibilities. No, you, you are a pretty wonderful person. And what you've done for, for, you tried to do for your dad and when you were in your 20s and you had 
children of your own and you had a sister, that's literally all you could do is because just physically we, we can't help everybody. And, and, in, and in the industry that, that, that I'm in, you know, I, I would really like to save everybody's life. You know, I, I would really like to, to tell people that if they, if they use an interventionist, that everything will be okay. But I can tell you that, I, that I've been to more funerals than I have weddings. It's, it's in, in you to do this kind of stuff, you, you have to be very steely and, and you have to have a very strong nerve. And so I, I, I just wanted to tell you that I, I, I don't think that you ran away from anything. And I, and I take, I, I'm, I'm very happy to have met you. And I'm very happy to, to know your story. Along the lines of, of your dad, I would like to, and what I like to do in these podcasts is, is I like to, to give you know s- some sort of practical advice for people who are watching, because there are going to be invariably people, some people who are watching who were you when, when, they, when you were younger, or who, were I, who was me when I was younger. So there's going to be people watching this who are drunks, who are addicts, and also the people who, who are the victims of, of drunks and addicts. And so from, from your perspective, was there, do you think, anything that should have been done earlier on with your dad to interdict with his, with his addiction? Not, not necessarily by you, but by his family members, because you were a child. This was not your responsibility to do this, but it was the responsibility of people like his mom, which did surprise me that his mom wasn't more vociferous about, about his addiction. But a lot of that also has to do with our culture. And I do know from PEI culture that, that talking to a full grown man about his drinking is a, is a very unwise thing for a lot of women to do. Yeah, so my dad did have, I know my grandma had a couple conversations with him. My auntie Bernice, uh, my dad's sister, had a couple conversations with social services, was at our door quite often. And I know I chronicled one, one of the stories where they came and he was very nervous. He was very worried about losing all four of his kids. Uh, and we found out, you know, my two older brothers knew what was happening, but I was I was too young. They didn't share it with me till after. Then my dad said, like, this is good. You're not going to get taken away because nobody's going to take four kids. So when we heard that, it was like, okay, we got to really hide, right? We got to hide. So my community, once we really, I released the book, my hometown felt uh, a lot of guilt. I got a lot of, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I guess they're apologizing, sorry, to little Diana, because I turned out okay, but they feel guilty and they have all expressed it. They're like, we just, we were busy with our own kids. We were going to hockey nights. Like, it's okay. I get it. Like, no people, there's a, this is interesting because what it honed in me is lots of people want to run when people are, are struggling, Right. I fight, flight, freeze, right? So it's like, it's just easier to do nothing and let it be its own train wreck. But yeah, it would have been nice if somebody would have just come in with a meal once in a while, called in and checked on us. Hey, do you want to come to our house for supper? You know, like little things like that would have made, uh, made us feel included, made us feel welcome, made us feel safe. But when I, I know the pivotal moment for me when I decided I have to hide it from everybody was when when social services came to the door when I'm five years old and I'm thinking we could all be split up. Like he said, nobody is going to take four kids. If I die, you guys are in big trouble. And he used to tell us. So, and he wasn't probably wrong, but a, a, a child's mind, that's the most terrifying. I already was losing my mom to lose my dad, my only parent. It was like, you can't comprehend that. Like your prefrontal cortex is not, operating I operated at a fight or flight for many many years and people would call for my dad and we would lie for where he was we'd say is that our grandparents he was some you know anywhere but the bar even though you could drive by and see his vehicle there right but it was that shame so I called him out on his alcoholism when I was 16 and he hated that and I felt I felt shame frustration and relief all at once because it was like the cat I could I'm like this pot that's boiling with a lid on and everybody else was much better at keeping their mouth shut than me because they were sick yeah and but my brothers right one of my brothers did him and my dad my brother Chris had to leave home at like 17 years old or 16 because he couldn't handle it 
And I was just like, ah, okay, like this is just going to be, I'm just going to call it out. Right. And, and it made my dad cry. And of course, then I felt bad, but I also didn't. And then my sister's like, you like, thank you. You know, thank you. Cause we, we can't keep doing this. And after that, when I'd answer the phone, I'd just say, it's at the bar. Right. Like I don't need to hide his, his, his business, but there was a lot of fear. So that's also why we, we hit it. We were, I was afraid of social services, but I was also afraid of my dad's anger. He generally wasn't violent. There was a couple times where he got kind of aggressive, but he, he tried to keep that in check. So I'll give him props there for as much as he could, but he was very dominant, very, very dominant. And, and then he got me as his daughter. <laughs> and it's funny because he didn't give women the same rights as, as men. So as we grew, as I grew into an adult and, and now have a successful career, he's just like, huh, like, good job. I'm proud of you. And he said that. <laughs> I was like, yeah, well, you gave me every reason in the world to fight for my worth. And I had to jockey for it hard to get that. I'm proud of you. I never wanted my kids to feel like that. They had to jockey for that, their worth. Oh, I lost you now. Oh, there you are. are. We back on. Yeah. There we go. There you can go. you see me? Yeah, I can see you. Oh, perfect. So, did did you ever do you ever kind of think it's it it might be strange that your dad's addiction made you the strong person that you are? Or at least yeah, it's kind to of it. a paradox, right? Yeah, like, isn't it? Isn't it, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It totally is. So it's like, there's part of me that has gratitude for all of the childhood trauma and train wreck because it made me a far better person. I know there's that saying where they say hard times make good, make strong people, strong people make good times good and good times. times make weak people. I, I, I believe in that to a point because I look at my own kids and I'm like, okay, so I created the good times and then they're going to be the weak people. So I, we let them deal and manage with a lot of their things in life with us on the sidelines. We're not micromanaging. We're not the helicopter parents because it's like, how are you going to develop that skill set if you don't go through it, right? You got, you got to go through the dirty in order to get to the nice, clean, shiny surface over there. So there's been events in their life. We'll be the support. We'll listen but they got to dig in and, and, and do the work and figure it out. They listen to tons of podcasts. I'm so proud of them. How did you first find Al-Anon? Well, all the commercials in Canada back in 1980s and 90s were this, they were all over the TV. So there was a, this glass and it would be like on the dash and your vision would get worse and worse. And they talk about, you know, if you've had this much, you can't drink, you can't see, whatever, can't drive. And so you would hear that. And then they'd have little commercials about the uh, families of alcoholics. So uh, yeah, I'm sure you read my story about my situation with going to Al-Anon one time when I was 19 or 20 or no, 18 or 19. And that didn't go so well for me because they put me in with all the wives of alcoholics. I must've been 19. I aged out of the kid program, apparently. And I said, like, I can't, I can't, like, I couldn't understand. I do now, but a 19 year old Diana's brain was like, why would you stay? Like, I just ran away from that. Like, why would you stay? But I'm not thinking about finances and kids and responsibilities and, breaking up a whole family, I'm just thinking, like, it's so unsafe and so toxic to be in that. So I never went back. In, in Al-Anon, they, they, they teach a bunch of basically techniques on, on what not to do to enable addicts. And in, in your own journey, what kind of advice would you give? Because I, I guess what the the value of of our podcast today could be could be is that somebody might not accept their cousin or their brother or their son or their husband or their nephew or whoever it is will not accept their drinking and their neglect of their own children so they don't become 
the victims like you and your siblings were of your of your father's addiction so is there anything in 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 your therapy and your writing and your experiences that you can share with somebody out there to kind of stick them with that prod them with that poker and say you know it, it you have a duty to 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 get in the way of somebody's addiction especially where you know they're not just hurting themselves I know a lot of people saying, I'm just drinking and it's, it has nothing to do with you and it's all me, me, me. But what they don't see is they don't see the silent victims who can't silently, you know, say what it is that's, that's bothering them. You like how I did that? And yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you see the play um, on words with my book then, right? It's, yes. Uh, yeah. 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 Yes. That it's, it's definitely, the series is called The Silence, like silence, right? So a yeah. lot not said. Two people couldn't talk and one chose not to, but he really couldn't. So I would say I've gone on every single point of being the family of an addict that you can feel. I felt every single feeling. I've wanted to detach. I've wanted to run away. I've wanted to get angry. I've done all three of those things with my dad. It wasn't until I started to figure out the addiction wasn't about me. Right. Right. Because as kids, you blame yourself. And my dad always said that if he didn't have, they didn't have the fourth kid, maybe mom wouldn't be sick. So I'm number four, right? And, and that stuck with me. So that's probably why I came in as a person that had this huge survivor's guilt and was trying to help everybody. Definitely. I've walked every path that you can as a, as a person loving an alcoholic. It's extremely hard. I would say first, get help for yourself. Because you're no good to the addict if you can't help yourself. So I helped myself by starting with Al-Anon. That didn't work for me, and that's okay. It works for tons of people. I'm sure it's a fantastic organization. It was just not my fit. I did a lot of reading, of reading about trauma. And through the trauma, I could see my dad as a human. I didn't see him as the addict, right? This is a spoiler for book Two, but my dad died in 2018, surrounded by. Oh, uh, I was going to ask. Yeah, I, I figured as much. Yeah, he was 72. He was dead for a week before we knew. Mm. My one brother went in to check on him the one day because we had moved him from the farm to town, and my he said, "Leave me alone. I got the flu. Get out of here." He had a lot of anger, so when he said leave, you left. Yeah. And then he came back a week later and, and he phoned me and, I, and he couldn't get the words out. And I said, dad's dead. But you know, what's interesting is that like literally a month ahead of that, I said, my dad, this will be our last Christmas together. He yeah. didn't make Christmas. He, he died December 1st. Pretty sure it was cirrhosis of the liver. He had no weight to him. He was smaller than me and I'm not a very big person. He just, he just shut his body down. So I wish I would have done this kind of work while my dad was alive, because now that I've read The Myth and Normal, I'm trying to remember the subtitle of it. Anyways, it, it's a fascinating read about addiction and the body keeps the score because how yeah. like everything affects you, like by, you know, everything affects from your mind affects your body. So my dad's mind was constantly going. I would say that get help for yourself first, whatever way, shape or form. I, I, I went to counseling. I did lots of counseling, grief counseling a lot, a lot of the time. And then just, you have to, I, I don't know if you have to, I shouldn't say that. I chose to love my dad in spite of his addiction. I chose to understand that it wasn't about me. I chose to get curious about what might've happened in his life besides our family dynamics that might've triggered this. And I came to an understanding like my last conversation with my dad, I did just come out of surgery. I was always trying to protect him. So I never even knew that I was going into surgery. So I phoned him from the hospital and I said, I'm not his surgery. He's like, what did you have surgery for? I didn't want him to worry. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have endometriosis and it's okay. So then from there, we had a beautiful conversation where he told me, like my, my way of communicating with my dad ended up becoming in, in a form of writing. I wrote him a, a 70th birthday poem about being daddy's little girl because I was really close to my dad when I was a kid because he was my only parent. And he loved that. 
And he said in our last conversation, he's like, you can publish your book. I give you, I, you know, if, you, if you're waiting for my permission, you have a beautiful gift and you need to share it with the world. So we both came. We both had to meet because he had to accept where I was coming from and I had to accept that I could never change him. And it wasn't really about changing him. It's about loving him in spite of the addiction. And, but sometimes you have to put boundaries in place for yourself. So my boundary was living three, three and a half hours away. My boundary was when he phoned in the middle of the night, I couldn't answer because it was always drunk arguments and mm -hmm. frustration. And he did it for literally years until I told him, you're waking up my babies. You can't do this. And I got mad. So that was a very clear boundary. My boundary of him not drinking when he was around me. That might have been not the best boundary. It might have been a little dangerous for his health, but I didn't understand that at the time, and he respected it as best that he could. Yeah, I mean, I understand him now, right? I'm an adult yeah. that did the work and got curious. So I'd say get curious about yourself. Get curious about how it affects you, your family, and get curious about that loved one that's hurting because they probably are hiding some pain yeah, I, I, I've lost a lot of people in, in my family to addiction and, and both my parents, three grandparents, uh, sister, a lot of cousins, a lot of people. And, but, but I also, we have a lot of people who, who have overcome that and have been able to quit drinking for long periods of time or and been sober, depending on if they have a program or not. Uh, or, and we have some of them who just quit drinking cold turkey and never joined any program or anything however however you get to where that place of safety is 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 i guess good enough but i wanted to thank you for for taking the time to talk to us and give us your insights and, and any helpful pointers that you you can give to those people who are watching and they and they all the people watching here are either have been affected by someone suffering from alcoholism or are currently suffering from that now and if you are please know that there is support out there and there is a future for you like there was with, with Diana. And I encourage all of you to go out and get a copy of Silently Said. It is a truly wonderful book and it's something that touched my own heart. And so thank you very much, Diana. And thank I hope to talk much. to you again soon. Yes, for sure. My next book comes out hopefully in a couple months. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.